Hello and welcome back to Evangelize Me and our study of 1 Thessalonians. We're happy you've joined us and we want to begin by reviewing again the goals that we have for this series. That we want to gain a deep practical understanding of the scriptures so that we fall in love with them, that we understand them, that we, uh, and when we're reading them or hearing them or singing them, we have a context uh, of where these scriptures are coming from. And of course, we want to learn how to study them so that when we're reading, when we have questions, we know what questions to ask and where to find the answers to these questions so that we can uh, not just uh, read the scriptures and, and not come away with uh, really understanding what the Lord is saying through them. And, and of course, we want to learn how to practically apply scriptures to our lives. How do you take these stories and events and uh, uh, lessons and, and apply them to our personal daily lives in a way that uh, is transformative and leads to our conversion? And finally, we want to learn how to hear God's message for each one of us, that God wants to speak to you through these scriptures. He wants to be able to communicate his grace and his love and mercy to us through these words, as we'll see as we look at this chapter. And so in chapter 2, uh, Paul's continuing his, uh, his, his uh, explanation of his ministry to the Thessalonians, his description of his ministry to the Thessalonians. And it's really insightful to, to take your time to look at this chapter because Paul's explains what his motivations are for his ministry to them. And also, he, he uh, highlights those things that are uh, motivations for preaching the gospel that are not appropriate, which is kind of interesting. And so for all of us who are uh, disciples and we want to be able to share the love of God and the, the hope of salvation with our loved ones, this is a really important chapter to think about what, you know, how, how are we doing that and what does that look like and how can we do it better. <clears throat> And so all the way through this chapter, that's what we're going to be looking at. It's like, what is Paul saying about his ministry, and what does it mean for you and I as we try to share the gospel? And so it begins with, You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. So his first statement there that it was not in vain that he came to them, obviously he wouldn't be writing this letter, right? They came to faith, they came to salvation through his visit with them and the proclaiming of the gospel. And he reminds them of what he had experienced in Philippi. Remember we talked about that in the introduction of the book, that he went to Philippi and was arrested and beaten with rods and thrown into prison, and that his, uh, his arrival at Thessalonica was right after that. He would have been recovering from that beating when he arrived in Thessalonica. And, uh, and the thing that I want to highlight with these verses is, is that he says, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. And so Paul is acknowledging that this isn't, uh, you know, we, I think sometimes when we think about these apostles or saints, we think that um, they're, they're almost like, you know, robots or something. It's just like Paul's, like, just goes from town to town proclaiming the gospel. But as we'll see as we look in his letters, we discover that he um, struggled. 
He struggled with despair. He struggled with discouragement. Uh, and obviously, what he's saying here is that, uh, you know, he, as a man, as a regular human being, he struggled with fear, just like every one of us do, when we're about to share the gospel or when we try to share the gospel. And so uh, he says it takes courage, that we had courage in our God. And so you think about the things that uh, maybe make you afraid or anxious about sharing the gospel with people. I know sometimes for me it's, uh, you know, the, the fear of, um, you know, how they're going to respond, right? That they might be angry, they might judge me, they might think that I'm stupid for being a Christian, they might think I'm, uh, you know, they might have this um, preconceived idea of what Christianity is and throw me into a group of, uh, you know, bigots or, uh, you know, ignorant people, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, maybe I'm afraid of making them angry or offending them, right? Or, or uh, you know, any of these things that that we need to be aware of, like why, you know, like, and sometimes what happens, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, is that we have an opportunity to share the gospel and we don't, right? And that's a good uh, opportunity to look at, like, what was I afraid of? How come I didn't do that, right? What got in the way of me being able to say what I thought needed being said right then? And so he says, uh, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel in spite of great opposition. I mean, when Paul was declaring the gospel, he was expecting people to be opposed to what he was saying, which is really interesting, right? Because we find ourselves in our culture uh, also in a situation where uh, there can be strong opposition to what we believe as Christians and, and how we think people should live their lives. And that opposition is sometimes, you know, can come across angry or can come across judgmental. And so it's important, right, to, to understand Paul is saying, this is about the virtue of courage. And just like all the other virtues, the idea is, is that the more that you exercise it, right, it's like a muscle, the more, uh, the stronger it gets and the easier it is to be able to use that virtue. And so he said, we had courage and it took courage for us to proclaim the gospel to you in Thessalonica after what we experienced in Philippi. So he goes on, he says, our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery. Now, this is the first of two lists that he makes about the, the, uh, the motivations that he is, uh, is saying, like, this, isn't, this wasn't about trying to manipulate you, right? We weren't trying to deceive you into doing something. Uh, we weren't trying to, you know, we weren't lying to you. We weren't, um, uh, we weren't trying the impure motives, which I think he'll visit again in another verse, uh, and, or this idea of trying to trick somebody, right? And so he says, look, like, like we're careful about what our motivation is. It doesn't, and where, where does it spring from? And so he goes on, our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak. I'm going to pause there, even though that's not the end of the verse. So in chapter 1, Paul talked about us being chosen in Christ that uh, we did not choose him, but he chose us. And now, he says, we have been approved 
by God. It's kind of, you know, it, it, when we're reading through Paul's letters, we have to pay attention to these, these, um, these descriptions that he gives about us because it tells us something about ourselves. What does it mean that we have been approved by God? Well, it's really important because as we're proclaiming the gospel, we may find disapproval from other people, right? The people that we're talking to. We might, we might be rejected or judged by them. And so it's important that we have this sense of, I have God's approval. I have God's blessing that God sees me in light of the grace. It reminds me of Jesus' baptism. And how uh, at Jesus' baptism, it's, it's, he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't proclaimed the gospel. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't, uh, you know, he hasn't even started his ministry yet. And yet at, the, at his baptism, the voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And, and it's interesting that he's pleased with his Son before he does anything at all. Right? And, and that's the, the pleasure that you and I need to know that we have. We have the Father's pleasure because of who we are, because of who he created us to be. And so we have the Father's approval and we have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. It's kind of interesting because you think of, of, of entrusting someone with something, it, it, you know, the, the word implies that there's something of value and that I'm, I'm giving it into your possession, right, for, for you, like I'm trusting you with this treasure. And so Paul uses this word to say, like, the, this gospel that we have, this message of hope, this profound revelation of who God really is is this incredible treasure that we're entrusted with. And it kind of reminds me of like the, you know, the parable of the talents, like that you receive this treasure, and then of course there's an accountability that goes along with it, right? There's this idea of like, okay, what are you going to do with this now that you've been entrusted with it? And so and he says, uh, uh, we came... Uh, because we, we have been approved by God, we have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. Even so, we speak not to please mortals, but to please God. And again, it goes back to that idea of like, if we're looking to please people, right? If we're, if we're trying to get uh, people's approval, or love, or attention, or, uh, you know, uh, win them over in some sort of way for our personal gain and whether it's emotional or physical or uh, you know uh, in our you know pride of <laughs> accomplishing something and Paul says like that's not our motivation at all our motivation is entirely oriented towards the Lord and and how the Lord wants us to share this message with others. Whether people receive it or not is really it's none of our business, right? Because it's the Lord working in people's hearts. And so you have Jesus, you know, proclaiming the truth and having, um, you know, thousands of people walk away from him, right? And, and so he wasn't doing it for people's approval, right? If he was, he wouldn't have been proclaiming the truth. But he was doing it to please the Father, to proclaim the truth in order to please God himself. 
And then Paul finishes this. He says, who, we want to please God who tests our hearts. Now, when God, you know, this, this phrase sometimes I think is, uh, is a little scary for us. It's like, oh, I don't want to get tested, right? But the idea of testing isn't like God, God isn't trying to discover something about us because he already knows everything about us, right? And so it's not like he's testing us to try to figure out where we're at and then like, oh, we're going to pass or fail. It's to reveal to us where we're at. It's sort of like when, when in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sin, God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? Right? He, he, it's not like God didn't know where Adam was. God knew exactly where Adam is. He's asking that for Adam's sake, for Adam to reflect like, yeah, like where am I? Right? And so this idea of testing, and we find it all the way through the scriptures. You have uh, probably the, the most famous one is this idea of Abraham being tested with Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac, the offering of Isaac. And at the end of that, it talks about, uh, you know, that, that uh, Abraham was uh, able to trust God or willing to trust God, even with that which was most precious to him. And, and that idea that that, uh, that Abraham was able to see his own heart. He was able to see, yeah, I, I really do trust the Lord. Uh, and, and so there's times when uh, we go through seasons where sometimes things are taken away from us or, uh, or, or challenged in different ways. Um, and we wonder, like, what, you know, like, you know, what is God doing in this season? And of course, that, that's always the ultimate question, right? What is God doing? And, and, all, and always what he's doing, first of all, is that he's loving us. Because his, everything he does in our lives is motivated by love. Uh, even the testing is motivated by love. It's not motivated by, uh, you know, anything else. He's not trying to shame us. He's not trying to, uh, you know, show us how dumb we are or weak we are. He's, he loves us. And, and, uh, and, of course, part of that is that he wants to transform us into the image of his son so that we can experience more hope and peace and joy. And so this, that, that transformation pro process is sometimes incredibly painful, right? And it's, uh, and it's, and it's, uh, and it certainly reveals our hearts. If you've ever gone through a season where you've been angry at God, or you've been, uh, you've lost something and you go through the process of letting it go and learning how to trust the Lord in, in, in that whole process, right? Um, then you know, or I, at least I hope you know, that at the end of that time, there's usually an understanding of like, okay, I'm, I'm a different person now than I was before. I'm, maybe I'm more compassionate, maybe I'm more merciful, maybe I'm, maybe I'm weaker in some ways, and so I have to rely on the Lord more. But this idea, of course, is that, uh, that the Lord is always working. And so Paul talks, he says, hey, you know, listen, God, I, you know, I'm the apostle, and I you know, have this great uh, ministry of establishing churches, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a saint that's famous through all of history. Uh, and he says, like, I, I've gone through my own testing. Well, and we'll see that as he writes uh, more and more letters as we go through his letters. He says, as you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed. Nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
And so notice he says these, these, uh, these three or four uh, words describing things that could be done in the preaching of the gospel that would be wrong. It's interesting to think that you could preach the gospel from the wrong motivation, right? Because it seems like, well, isn't this always the right motivation? Um, and yet, when he's writing to the Philippians, Paul says, Paul is in prison when he's writing to the Philippians, and he says, there are some people who are preaching the gospel here, hoping to get me into more trouble. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's, that's not a very good motivation for proclaiming the gospel, right? And so he says, sometimes you could proclaim the gospel with words of flattery, right? This idea of like, um, trying to, uh, you know, like, oh, you're so smart, you should, you should become a Christian, or you're so, you know, like, whatever, this idea of, like, uh, trying to win them over by telling them how good they are, or wonderful they are, or whatever it is, and Paul says, like, that isn't, that wasn't, that isn't uh, the basis of, of proclaiming truth at all. And, or, he says, or with a pretext for greed. He wasn't trying to, uh, you, you know, usually we think of greed as, like, trying to make money off the gospel, right? And, of course, you know, we have some pretty um, spectacular examples of that in, in the modern Western world um, of people who have gotten very rich proclaiming the gospel. Um, but, of course, it's not just money that people might seek, right? That it might be... Uh, one of the things that I see is that people proclaim the gospel out of fear, right? They're not doing it, uh, I mean, obviously, they're, you know, they love the people that they're proclaiming it to, but they're, they're actually uh, doing it more out of a fear that their loved ones uh, are not going to be saved, right? And so, and this really affects how the message comes across, right? Because I think people sense um, when we're trying to convince them of something, or manipulate them into something, or guilt them into something, and so I see it a lot with parents who, who, uh, who tell their children, like, they know better, they should go to Mass, um, and of course, uh, of course that's true, but that's uh, not the truth and beauty and goodness that we want to uh, be proclaiming so that people have a desire. See, that's the thing. We don't want to just change people's behavior for the sake of changing their behavior. We want their hearts transformed. And that's the, the beauty of the message, is that this is a beautiful and amazing thing, that, that the God who created this entire universe loves us, and he loves each one of us, and has uh, paid the ultimate price so that he could spend eternity with us. And so, um, so sometimes, like I've, I can remember several conversations where, uh, um, where people will introduce me, you know, because I, I have this, you know, like I have this ministry where I, I seek to proclaim the gospel. And, uh, and so people, you know, I, I can remember one time this person introduced me and said, this is my cousin. She was raised Catholic, but she doesn't go to church anymore. You should talk to her. <laughs> okay, that's a great introduction. That, uh, but it's, it was like, wow, I, I have an agenda for you, and my agenda is that you become a Christian. My agenda for you is that you go to Mass. And Paul's saying, this wasn't about my agenda, right? And so it's important that we look at, like, what's our motivation for the things that we say? Because if we are saying things without the proper motivation, then that's going to affect how that communication is received on the other side. If people sense that we're proclaiming the gospel to them because of fear, uh, or, or that we're trying to get something out of them, then they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to hear the message. 
about the love and the truth and the beauty. And so that's a discerning thing. And he says, uh, he says, um, we didn't seek praise. And again, that goes back to this idea of trying to please people. We weren't trying to build up our own egos. We weren't trying to build up our numbers. Yeah, you know, there, there's such a tendency in us to, to think like, oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm so successful because I have all of these people coming to my Bible study, or I have all of these people coming to my church, or I have, uh, you know, all of these people following me on Facebook, or whatever it is. And, and, and there is, there's something in us that, it, that feels a certain satisfaction, right? A certain um, desire, um, you know, seeking praise, seeking that affirmation, seeking a sense of like, see, I am valuable. I am important, I'm significant in some way. And if we find those things in what we do as a part from who we are, then, then that is going to taint our proclamation of the gospel. So Paul's saying, like, I didn't do this, you know, I didn't do it with words of flattery, I didn't do it to try to meet some, you know, some of my needs, I didn't do it out of a, a, a sense of trying to fulfill some sort of purpose. He said, uh, and, and the final thing he says, like, you know, we could have made demands of you, which is really interesting, right? This idea that uh, he has a certain amount of authority as, a, as an apostle and that uh, he, he could have said, now listen, now that you've been baptized, uh, a certain amount of your income should be coming to me <laughs> or like you should be obedient to me or uh, you should. But Paul's, again, his attitude is, is all about. I am here to serve you. And so he says we could make demands as apostles. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. And, and the cool thing that I like about these passages where Paul talks about his relationship with the Thessalonians is that they are all relational, right? And they're, and they're uh, precious relationships, this idea of, a nurse tenderly caring for children is is a very different than than you know this idea of like I'm your teacher and you're a student or I'm the apostle and you're my converts or you know I'm the founder of this church or whatever it is it's like no no I'm, I have this this deep love for you and that is why I do what I do is because of love that's why a nurse or a mother would take care of her children, right? Is out of this love, an abundance of love. He said, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. Now, to me, this is just a beautiful uh, vulnerability that Paul, uh, in this letter, is opening up his heart and showing us the real motivation for what he's doing, right? He's doing it out of love. This love of God has been poured into his heart, right? And so when he goes into these towns, and in spite of uh, all of the opposition, in spite of all the things that he suffers, he he uh, he gathers his courage to be able to proclaim the gospel. He's doing it out of love, and then he gives them not only the gospel but our own selves. And what I see in this is this idea of evangelization being about relationships. It's all about relationships. 
It's about spending time with people. It's about sharing our lives and our journeys. It's about us being vulnerable and real and authentic with them. It's about um, you know com having a commitment, a long-term commitment to the relationship that that it's not just uh, I want you to go to church, right? Uh, but I want to be your companion on this journey. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that we've done with Evangelize Me is do small group leader trainings, and uh, and and I really think that that's a really valuable tool that the church underuses. Uh, and and of course it's it's not about parishes starting small groups and having lots of small groups and having it organized. It's about disciples having small groups. It's about every single one of us who has a relationship with Christ uh, having a circle of, of friends or people, neighbors, uh, that, that we're in a relationship with that we can meet with as a small group. I know especially now with the pandemic and all of that stuff that's a difficult thing but I want to challenge you to think about like who are the people in in your life that that you really would love to be able to share yourself with in such a way that um, you'd also, in the sharing of yourself, you're also sharing the gospel, right? And that's, uh, of course, what Paul, when, he, when Paul talks about, like, be imitators of us, he's, he's inviting us into this life of giving ourselves, giving of our very selves to other people. And again, he emphasizes that it's because you have become very dear to us. <clears throat> he says, you remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked day and night so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. So, um, in other letters, Paul talks about being uh, uh, working with people who are tent makers. And where he's from, uh, the, uh, the uh, area that he was from in Turkey originally, um, was very famous for its uh, textile industries, basically. Um, somehow, Paul's family, uh, it said Paul was born a Roman citizen. In order to be born a Roman citizen, your, your parents had to be Roman citizens, and if you weren't uh, someone who actually lived in Italy, uh, then the way that you became a Roman citizen is that you could buy it, or you could earn it by being a, uh, you know, a soldier in the army. And so, um, Paul's parents must have had some wealth to be able to become uh, Roman citizens uh, living in, uh, in the area of modern-day Turkey. And so he's born a Roman citizen, uh, and most people think that his parents probably had some sort of uh, uh, you know, tent-making business or fabric business, and that he used this to support himself. We'll find this uh, the same type of expression when we come to 1 Corinthians and how he lived in, in Corinth, and instead of trying to draw a salary from the church, which he could have demanded, right? He could have said, hey, listen, if I'm going to be here and ministering. Um, but, but instead, while he's proclaiming the gospel, he's also uh, earning a living for himself so that he's not a burden to anyone. So that he's not, and also, of course, he's not taking anything from them so that he could be accused of, like, see, he's just doing this for the money. <clears throat> so Paul is, is, uh, is proclaiming, he's, like, intentionally choosing this lifestyle of tent making uh, and proclaiming the gospel so that he could demonstrate, listen, my motives are pure, I am just here to proclaim the gospel to you and be in relationship with you for your salvation, right? I'm not benefiting from this. 
In fact, he goes on and he says, You are our witnesses, and God also. How pure and upright and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. And so uh, Paul is, uh, again, role modeling for us this idea of um, uh, making sure our motivations are as pure as they can be and then being open to the Lord, being, you know, revealing those times when our motivations aren't pure. He goes on uh, and he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So again, this another illustration, another family relationship, father and children. How, how he, and, and I appreciate this. We exhorted each one of you, right? And so he's saying this isn't like, like um, just a, this group thing that's going on, but that he, he sought individual relationships with people and encouraged you and charged you. And so there's an exhortation, an encouragement, a charging. And so to me, those, those words, exhortation, means like this, this proclamation, right? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm telling you the truth and then I'm encouraging you. That, uh, that even though it's difficult or it might be hard or there's things in the way uh, that, this, you know, if you look at that word, I'm, I, I am giving you the courage that you need to be able to follow this lifestyle, to be able to enter into this life of faith. And then I'm going to charge you. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to call you to, uh, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel to be transformed into a child of God, right? That if you're, you're you're adopted into the family of God through baptism, that now you live as a child of God. He says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And again, we have to make this personal, that God calls me. He, he called me into his kingdom. He called me into his own glory. What a beautiful and amazing thing. So Paul says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So a couple of things about this is, of course, that uh, that that when Paul is proclaiming the the gospel, you could just see this as, oh yeah, Paul has a has this passion about this, and uh, and that's all he really wants to talk about, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's just Paul talking, right? And so we can ignore that, uh, or we can receive it as for what it really is, a message from the Lord. And of course, um, when the Catechism quotes this. Uh, it, it's, it's referring it to the scriptures and how the scriptures are, uh, are the word of God to us, that God is actually speaking, not just generically, uh, but speaking to each one of us through time, this eternal word of God. And it's interesting that it says, uh, this word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That this word... Is, is is alive 
And, and uh, Paul talks about that in another letter where he says that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword able to discern between the bone and the marrow. In other words, able to, to, to go to the very depths of a person to discern their motivations. Um, that uh, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a uh, um, in one of the prophets, he says, the Word of God accomplishes that for which it is sent forth. Right? And so, so this, the Scriptures are alive, and as we... Uh, become open to them, they can have a transformative power on us, right? So the Word of God is working in the Thessalonians, which is kind of cool, right? And so the Word of God, the Scripture is also working in you and I to accomplish the transformation. Uh, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he says that, uh, that he who has started a good thing will accomplish it in Christ Jesus. This idea that that he is always working for our good. He is always working for our trans, trans, uh, transformation uh, because he, want, he desires to bring us into the fullness of his life, into the abundant life that he purchased for us. And he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. So, of course, he's talking about the, the believers in Christ in, uh, in Jerusalem and in the area around Jerusalem. He says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so this idea that, uh, that in their conversion, uh, they draw the wrath of uh, the people that the, amongst whom they live. Right? And, and of course we see that in, in the modern world, when, uh, in, in, in a lot of Muslim countries where it's illegal uh, you know, to convert, and that if you're converted, then um, there's a, it's a capital crime, it's, it's a, you know, the punishment is to put you to death, right, and so, so even though this is a 2,000 year old letter, Paul's saying, listen, <laughs> this is a, this is a common experience, and, and, you know, in, in this way, you're, you're sharing this experience with these people uh, in Judea that you, like, you don't know, and you've never even met but you became imitators of them. Uh, and he says these, uh, these same people killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And so you can see like this resistance to God and his will and his word. Um, and he says, and they drove us out, which is kind of an interesting phrase because actually Paul was on the other side during the driving out, right? That's, you know, it was under the persecution where Paul was one of the leaders that the church was, in Jerusalem was scattered. <laughs> and he was one of the ones that uh, was arresting Christians. Uh, and so this idea that look, they were driven out of Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, he ends up being driven out of Jerusalem after his conversion. And he says, and they, uh, they displease God and oppose all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So this idea that um, uh, this, this hindrance um, that, that the society and the people of a society would have to the proclamation of the gospel is actually an opposition to all people, right? Because this is a message for all people. It's a message of hope for all people. And if they're trying to, it, it's almost like a, uh, you know, like some, uh, it's a blessing that is, that's something good that that is for every single person, and if we're hindered from bringing it to those people, then they're actually hurting everyone by doing that. And it says they uh, they fill up the measure of their sins by doing that, and that God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now that's an interesting phrase, and and quite honestly, 
I'm not sure what Paul means by that, right? How, how has God's wrath come upon those people who have opposed the gospel? Um, and, and, and at that point, he's talking about uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem. But it, it's, this is around 50, and so Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. That doesn't happen until 70. And so uh, it could be, this is just my thought, it could be that you know, they tried to squash the church. And, uh, and that uh, God, instead of letting the church get squashed and destroyed, has blessed it. Because remember, just in a few verses before this, it talked about like, these are the people who have turned the world upside down. It's almost like the more you, you tried to hinder it, the more that you tried to cover it up and squash it and destroy it, the bigger and stronger it became. Which is really kind of cool, right? Which would just be, uh, that would demonstrate that this is really is from God and that there is no stopping it. And of course, that's really the message of the gospel, that uh, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so uh, Paul goes on, he says, but since we were bereft of you, and so remember Paul uh, has to leave them, uh, again, really kind of against his will. He, you know, they insist that he leave for his own safety. He says, so, so he's separated from them for a short time in person, he says, but not in heart. He says, like, I was never separated from you in my heart. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Do you see how often Paul in his letter is affirming his love and desire and care for these people, right? He's making uh, it so clear that this is about his love for them. And he says, because uh, I was bereft of you, I was grieved in the separation, I wanted to see you face to face. I, Paul, you know, it says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul. So he's, he, he, he's making this individual, like this letter is from all three of them, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy. But Paul here is highlighting, right? It's like, I, Paul, wanted to see you face to face. I wanted to come see you again and again. And this ends with this really interesting little phrase where Paul says, but Satan hindered us. But Satan hindered us. Now, it's really interesting. We find Paul being hindered in one story in, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, where he has a plan to go to a certain place to preach the gospel, and it says the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there, which is kind of interesting, right? So and, and, but there's not any details. What did that look like? How did he know the Holy Spirit was preventing him from going there? How did he, uh, how did he experience that? And so Paul has this sense where it's like, okay, the Holy Spirit uh, doesn't want me to do this certain thing, uh, even though I would perceive it as a good thing. It would be my plan, right? Uh, and then he has this, this good plan, this plan to do a good thing, to go visit the Thessalonians. And this time, it's not the Holy Spirit that's hindering him, but Satan. And so it's kind of interesting to, to just observe uh, a couple of things that, first of all, Paul had that discernment that um, that there's times when the Holy Spirit would stop him from doing something, and then there were other times when it was the enemy that was frustrating his plans. And of course, um, 
there's a there's an acknowledgement here that uh, even when the the enemy desires to do things, uh, that that God is more powerful than the enemy. But of course, you have that story in the Old Testament where uh, uh, where one of the prophets is praying, and and his prophets, the answer to his prayers are delayed uh, because of this spiritual battle going on, right? And and so it's we have to realize that the enemy is real, right? Um, that there is a real devil, there is a real demonic influences in this world. And as we're growing in Christ, and especially as we're getting to the point where we're desiring to share the gospel with other people, that we become more and more targets of the enemy. Because he would desire to hinder us from being able to proclaim the gospel to be able to, to proclaiming the truth of having people enter into the salvation that has been offered to them by God. The, the scriptures talk about us being involved in a very real spiritual battle. Uh, and Paul will talk about this in many of his letters, uh, that we need armor, that we need to be aware of the wiles of the enemy, um, that we have to, uh, and part of that battle has to do with our thoughts, taking captive every thought, uh, that the enemy would, uh, would hinder us um, by causing us to, to be deceived or uh, to, to live our lives in fear. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, he can work in through other people, uh, who he has influence over, he can uh, work in, to some degree in circumstances and situations so that, uh, so that he tries to hinder us. And so that's something to be aware of as we're, as we're uh, uh, moving forward with this idea of evangelization, this idea of sharing the gospel, uh, that, the, that we have an opposition as well. And Paul says, uh, uh, this desire to come to them, he says, for what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Now I want to just pause there and think about Paul is, 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 uh, is saying part of his motivation, right? His motivation is, is love, but part of his motivation is this idea that the Lord is coming. And, and he says, my hope and joy and crown of boasting, which is kind of an interesting phrase, before the Lord at his coming. Is it not you? For you are, are our glory and joy. So Paul is anticipating, right? So he's, he's pouring out his life in these, to these people. He's, uh, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's filled with love for them. Uh, he's he's uh, exhorted them and encouraged them and charged them. And, and what he's saying is, like, I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, I'm doing this for the Lord. And, and that when the Lord appears, I will have fruit. Right? I'll have so the fruit of my life, the fruit of my ministry. I will n not just be bringing myself before the throne of God, but I'll be bringing all of the people who I've proclaimed the gospel to, all of the people who have uh, come to faith, right? And so we all know that, and, you know, that, that there's a judgment seat of Christ and that we'll be judged according to our, uh, our actions. And so this idea that Paul is anticipating, he's looking forward to this, this with, like, with hope and with joy, and with a crown of boasting, almost like, you know, like, like, like you know, I, I see it, you know, usually we think of boasting as being rooted in sin and arrogance, 
but I see it more as uh, as like a, a child to a father, right? Like look at look at what I did. Like, like look what look what because Paul would be the first one to say that you know he's totally dependent on God's grace, and so it's what God's grace did through him. But this idea of rejoicing in what he can bring as a gift to the Father, the fruits of his labor, the fruits of his life. And so, um, this idea of living for eternity is, is a theme that we see in all the saints' lives. They're very aware that, that this, this earthly pilgrimage that we're on is just a prelude to an eternal existence with God, and that everything we do here Right. If you give a glass of water in my name, you shall not lose your reward, Jesus says. That everything we do has eternal consequences. And Paul knows, he's, he's like anticipating, my work among you Thessalonians is going to be part of what I can bring to the Lord when he appears. It's, uh, it goes right back to that, that, again to that the parable of the talents, right? That when the master comes back, I have used the talents he's given me. I've invested the talents he's given me so that I have more to return to him than what he gave me. And so Paul is expressing this idea that uh, he, he's anticipating the joy. He's anticipating uh, you know, this hope and glory as he stands before the Lord with all of the, the people that he has influenced. What a glorious idea, right? And so I would encourage all of us to, to think about like what, that this idea that, that when Jesus appears, we would have joy. We, we would have hope and joy at his appearing and we would be um, proud in a right way of the things that, that because of God's grace working in us and through us we are able to accomplish for his kingdom well that wraps up chapter 2 and so uh, I hope you've, uh, you've benefited from listening to this uh, your homework for this coming week is to read chapter 3 as we continue looking at First Thessalonians. And of course, if you'd, uh, if you'd like to contact me, then please feel free to uh, drop me an email at dawn at evangelizeme.com. That's dawn at evangelizeme, all one word, dot com. Thanks for joining us. God bless you.